All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Olsher hanging out with the whole crew today, Mary Goulet. What Hello. What's going on? The lovely Mary Goulet hanging out. Richie Ote, what's up, my brother? How's it going? All good, all good, all good. White Wade's got it under control in the studio. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down with entrepreneurs who've either exited for more than $10 million or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and try to... Find out what the secrets of their success are. And, uh, man, we've had some amazing guests uh, on in the last uh, little while. So if you've, missed, uh, if you've missed any of the past episodes, please make sure you go back into, uh, into the archives and check out some of those folks. Uh, I mean, just uh, – and you name it, lots of different industries as well. I mean, from real estate to restaurants to furniture to – I mean, you name it. It's just amazing where people are, are able to focus their, their expertise and focus their genius and build – you know, businesses and, and I mean, like printers and toner, like, yeah, it's crazy. You, you it's never, you, you would never think that some of these folks would be doing as well as they are and they're just crushing it. And then, uh, of course, we're going to be talking here today with Ken. How you doing, Ken? Good to see you, my friend. I'm fine. Hoping you can hear me. Yeah, we yes. can hear you perfectly. So Ken Aldrich is hanging out with us today. Uh, we got Shanda Sumter coming on. Uh, so check out that episode there in the future and, and many, many others. All right. So Ken, I want to jump straight into things here, man, just out of respect for, your time, I imagine you've just given everything that you've done. You are a man in demand. So thanks for taking the time and, uh, and carving out the time to hang out with us here on Beyond Eight Figures. Uh, so Ken Aldrich, uh, give, give us an understanding, uh, just so we can get this out of the way here early, is, is how do you meet the criteria for our show? Did you exit a business for more than $10 million? Do you currently have involvement with a business that grosses more than 10 uh, or both? Well, pr- probably the former, uh, because my my primary personal business is I've been an investor and a serial entrepreneur, uh, largely concentrating on investing. Uh, and I've had a couple companies that uh, started with uh, pretty small capital of around $5 million, and we either exited or went public with market caps well over $100 million. Mm. Uh, so, but uh, the one thing I, I don't have that is relevant is that most of my companies have been investment and we've been in the biotech and the medical device area more than in the bricks and mortar retail area. So uh, revenues have not been the key driver as much as technological advance and positioning. Mm-hmm. So let, let's let's talk about that for a second because I don't, off the top of my head, I don't know that we've had anybody with expertise in the biotech world on before so that's uh th- this will be a, a new conversation for us then so g- give us an understanding of of what you mean by that where it's not based on revenue but based more on on the technology and i guess really what you're saying is based on the potential yeah pretty much yeah i'll, I'll give you i'll pick one of the two companies that would either one of which i think would have fit your your basic criteria albeit i realized that i'm in a little different uh, uh segment of the market if you will mm-hmm. um some years ago, I started, uh, goes back almost a decade now, uh, a company because some friends of mine and I became fascinated with the potential for curing type 1 diabetes with uh, what were then called embryonic stem cells. Mm. Uh, that name is still being used. So we sought out uh, a brilliant scientist who had formerly been the chief cell biologist for the Soviet Union, but was now in the United States, and I met her through a mutual friend. And we set about to raise seed capital, uh, figure out how to go about this, how to 
We developed the necessary patents. We sent her back to Russia for more research. Ultimately took the company public before it was in revenue, while it was still in the R&D stage. Mm. But with, uh, and uh, it went up in value and then went way down in value. And we had to go through a whole marketing program to rebuild the stock and the company. Uh, including some major financial crises in 2008. So it, it is a different world. But the nature of the, uh, the, the, bio, the early stage biotech companies or the pre-revenue biotech companies is typically they do sell and are valued on their potential. So, for example, if we had been successful, and the company may still be, they're still working on it. I've exited the company. But um, if if we were successful in coming up with a cure for type one diabetes, uh, that would have been a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. Mm-hmm. So, but what happens is, and it's kind of what I call the, the can rule of investing in these is I look for companies when they are in the, in the pre-revenue, by the time they're revenue driven, they're usually have been bought by one of the major biopharma companies. That's just mm-hmm. the way the industry tends to work. Uh, but in the pre-revenue part, if you have one that, that is going public and it's not that hard to take them public. You're looking for events that can trigger interest in the marketplace, uh, entry into phase one trials, successful phase one entry into phase two. And there's a sequence of fairly predictable targets that each company goes through. So what we look for and what I look for when I'm an investor and not the founder uh, is what are the probabilities that this company is going to hit those kind of event markers so that it will, number one, if it's public, be more interesting to uh, get bought out, which is uh, what's happened in some cases, or if it stays private, uh, creates the value uh, for a buyout. I'll I'll shift companies for a minute because one of the companies that I founded was in the optical field, medical device field. And we sold, we started the company with some capital that I put in and raised about $5 million. Um, We ultimately sold it a few years later after some rounds of venture capital financing for 300 and some, I think $350 million. Mm. Um, but the company still only had 18 million in sales. Wow. So, so that was, mm. that was a 20 X on revenue at exit. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. Well, wow. whatever, whatever 18 into 350 is <laughs> <Yeah>, r- <laughs> roughly give or take. I'm no good at math. I'm just a businessman. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, lots of questions just off of that. Thanks for, for sharing that. And I'm sure Mary and Rich, you guys have, a lot of questions as well, but let me let me just make sure I'm clear on this. How do you how do you take a company public when it doesn't have revenue? I mean, like Wall Street, I would think is are we talking about alternative public structures? Because it, it seems like I mean, there's always companies that have losses. I mean, you can look at companies like Uber and Amazon and so on and so forth, right? I mean, it's countless number of of companies that have losses, but you know they have revenue. So when you take a company public, you're you're banking on future earnings, with the understanding, of course, that you know, hey, we already have revenue. Just going to keep growing that, and then we're going to close the gap between being in the red and being in the black. In this case, I would think that it's it's such a crapshoot in terms of whether or not a company in biotech is actually ever going to make any money, if you're going to pass the clinical trials, if you're going to get out of phase one, and and, and who knows really, you know, is phase one legit? Are we just saying we're like, I, 
to me, that's a whole new world that opens up so many questions. But are there alternative public offering structures than, than typical in the, in the biotech world? They're not structurally different. Uh, for example, we, when we took uh, the public company that I mentioned uh, out, we had to do it through uh, a, a process that I would not recommend to anybody today, but we did what's called a reverse merger. Ah, you know, you bought into a public and, shell and, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. And the only reason we had to do that was that was the only market available to us because the, uh, the traditional VC markets and other markets were um, very much afraid of anything that had stem cell involved in it. So, mm. uh, but everything I've done since then, if we've gone public with it, has always been straight to NASDAQ because uh, you have a real market, legitimate one, um, and then you can go on from, from that point on. For example, this is not a company that I was involved in. I wish I were, but there was a company fairly recently called Kite Pharmaceuticals, and Kite developed a, a fairly dramatic cancer cure based on a technology called CAR-T therapy. It's just an immunotherapy program, mm. but with enormous potential. Uh, they might have, by the time they finally got sold, had a little bit of revenue, but they went public before they had real revenue. I think they had a market cap of uh, very quickly of about a billion dollars based on what the public perceived as the future potential. Mm. They ultimately were sold for 13 or 14 billion dollars uh, before they ever really had any meaningful revenue. Ugh. So it's a wow. very different market perception. And you are very much speculating on future hopes mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the biotech world. Now, mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways that you can begin to measure that and, and measure probability and, and so on. But it's, it, I always used to say the worst thing that we could possibly do with an early stage biotech company is get some revenue because then, then somebody will put a multiple on it. And whereas if that, yeah. there is no multiple on future hopes. Yeah. What you do have to do, though, uh, and I don't want to beat this to death, but you do have to take a pretty good analysis of where your potential market is. Because if, if you've got this wonderful cure for a disease that only a thousand people in the country have, you're not going to get anywhere with it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's too bad because there mm -hmm. are some really nasty diseases that so-called orphan diseases. And they're, yeah. they're, a lot of, they're very hard to raise money for those. Yeah. So you're looking at the potential market, the probability that what you have is a unique solution. And, uh, and that's what drives those kinds of market capitalizations and, and the ability to access capital. Because early stage, whether it's medical devices or biotech, uh, eat capital at a pretty rapid rate early on. So yeah, you can think. start them with a little bit, but you do know that you're going to have to keep accessing the capital market until you get to either revenue or uh, get a buyout. Now, one source of revenue that you can get, we didn't happen to do it with our company, but... Uh, often, if you're in the biotech and you have good, uh, good science, uh, you can get the very lucrative contracts from Big Pharma. It'll be, in essence, a joint venture where they'll say, well, we'll fund $20 million for R&D on a particular drug in exchange for first right of refusal on it or some other variable on it. Mm. So that becomes an, an alternative to sales for companies in those early stages before they get... Uh, uh, to the point where they typically are bought uh, yeah. rather than go public. Some are still public, obviously. Amgen, which sure. everybody knows, started out in the same pattern. And they were, uh, you know, there was a time they, they asked famously asked the CEO or the founder, 
one point, what was your most successful public offering? And he said, when we sold the stock at a nickel a share because it kept us alive. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you, that would have been a good one to get in on, those nickel stories. a share. Yeah. So, uh, Mary, Richie? Go ahead. I, yeah, I have quite a few. Um, one that I would start with, since the stock market in and of itself is pricing in future revenues, and then now you're backing it up even farther, and there's a future potential market that you're trying to figure out, and then you have to say one whole story for the company, and then there's almost like many stories at each of these phases of each of these trials. And so what I'm interested in is if when you made the comment, normally by the time you get to revenue, you've been acquired. Yeah, who, that's, most deals, that's typically true. So who is in charge of passing you through these phases? Because it seems like there could be big pharma could have a big influence on what's even happening based on their percentages and what's going on and just squish you right out of the gate. Well, that's, a, I think, largely a myth uh, that big pharma will come in and, and squash the startup companies. The reality is big pharma in general is not very good at innovating new technologies. They tend to move very slowly. They tend to be large organizations. And as I've had a number of pharma companies tell me, look, we would rather see you get to a stage, preferably a stage two, which is, there, there are three stages. I should backtrack. It'll make it a little more uh, accessible for you. Stage one is the trials. Well, there's preclinical, which is usually rats and mice and sometimes larger animals, and you're testing out your theory. Phase one is purely safety. It'll be a relatively small number of people. It's relatively inexpensive, maybe a few million dollars, but not much more. Um, and that's just to find out, is this thing going to kill people instead of curing them? Phase two is where it gets interesting, because now you're starting to study dosage, proper amounts, in theory, it's not designed to prove efficacy. In fact, you often get very good efficacy data in a stage in a phase two. So it's at that point, if you have targeted a disease state and you have to do your market research because you have to look at what's out there. What does pharma want? What does pharma uh, not have? Where are they likely to, uh, to want to go? And so you know those kinds of things. Uh, then you sort of say, okay, what do we have to achieve? And if, once you start getting that kind of efficacy data, some, some pretty interesting things can happen in the marketplace. Um, I'll give you an example that just happened uh, a, a day or so ago. A company I did not start in, I just invested in it as, as a, a startup investment. But it was a company called Provention Bio, PRVB. And we went, it went public about a year ago, I guess, at about $4, and it kind of traded around, didn't really do much. They had an announcement at a major convention uh, on Sunday that they had come up with a treatment, a one-time treatment, that would delay the onset of type 1 so-called uh, juvenile diabetes by up to two years with the potential of repeated treatments maybe extending that development indefinitely. Well, the stock went from $4 to $22 in one day. It's backed off a bunch since then because it was obviously too much too soon, but is still two or three times what its public offering price was. And that's because it was very clear at that point that either they can raise enough money to go ahead and develop this as a 
as a viable product and start getting revenues. But the chances are enormous that long before it gets through phase three trials, which is when you get approval by the FDA, uh, they're going to get bids from major pharma companies and say, okay, this could be the next multi-billion dollar drug. So that's what we all hope for when we start companies in these fields. Medical devices a little different because medical devices, you, uh, you do generally want to, you got to get to revenue a little bit sooner. And the one we sold, we, we were in revenue, barely. But what we had proven was that we had a product that would sell and we had buyers and we knew who they were. So the company that bought us said, well, I, all right, we think with adding our marketing muscle and our name and there were synergies of products, we can make this company 10 times more valuable than it is. And that was the basis of the sale. It was an interesting mating dance, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mary? So you're talking big numbers, bold ventures. I want to kind of go back to the, have you always been this way? Because I do see you have a, two degrees from Harvard University and one from, well, one from Harvard University and one from the law school. Did you just come out of the gate knowing you wanted to be an investor? No, no, I had a long checkered career. Couldn't hold a job, basically. No, I, I Sounds like got us. out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, I, the, the story may or may not be interesting, but let me tell it quickly. Now, I got out of law school, got a, got a job in a, in a very fine, large uh, L.A. law firm, at that time one of the largest in the country. And I was you know, on the track to wait my seven or eight years and become a partner and so on and so forth. And went to a meeting one day. We were doing a, an S-1 registration statement for a large public company. And we spent all day chasing commas around drafting the registration statement, which is what lawyers do in those things. We got to the end of the day and the company and the underwriters said, okay, we're going to go off to Chasen's and have some dinner uh, for the people who are not local to LA. Chasen's is a very fine restaurant in LA. Mm -hmm. And um, they turned to the lawyers and they said, can you have the next draft of this done by, by nine in the morning? We'll send in food. And I looked at my, the partner I was working for and I said, you know, this is okay for me. I'm a 20 something year old kid. I don't mind. I'm on my way up, but you're a partner. I don't want to become a partner and still be eating takeout food after a a long day's work. Mm. I like it on the other side of the table. So that's what led me ultimately first to get into investment banking was in the real estate business. And then the financing market changed after the 1986 savings and loan crisis. And I could no longer finance things with huge multiples of leverage. We built an office building, uh, three partners and I, back in the 80s, built a $100 million office building, and the most money we ever had in of our own was $100,000. Jesus. Well, yeah. We took $3 million out of the first construction draw. That ceased to be possible after the SNL crisis, which was the precursor, much like the 2008 crisis in, in a sense. So I looked around and said, where can you go to get, not have to create a fund and still be able to invest with my own money and maybe a handful of friends and get into large deals. And the answer was, after I looked at it, well, early stage venture capital. I thought I was just going to be an investor. And then I ended up getting excited about a couple of things and, and started a couple of companies. I actually mm-hmm. started 10 of them. Most of them we sold very early, but two we kept long enough to get major exits. Yeah. Well, that's the history. Checkered yeah. though it may be. Right. And lots of... Uh... 
lots of home runs and lots of base hits and lots of strikeouts, I'm sure, over the over the years. What, uh, what as you look back, uh, especially from a venture capital or from a founder perspective or from an investment perspective, what uh, what was your biggest disappointment uh, from from that stand from that standpoint? If you think about it in terms of this should have been a grand slam and it turned out to be a strikeout. Well, there there certainly are a lot of those. Uh, I, I joke with my friends and I may someday actually do it that if I would take the stock certificates from the companies that I invested in that failed, I could easily paper my bathroom and maybe <laughs> a larger room than that. And papering the bathroom kind of sounds like appealing, you know, it just, just depends on the size of the bathroom, Ken. I mean, we're talking yeah, about like well, a little, you know, powder room well, on the first well, floor. Well, That's one thing. We're talking about the master yeah, well, on your third floor. It's a different. Yeah, a little different. But anyway, the concept <laughs> is there. So the, the, they all look wonderful when you're first reviewing them or you wouldn't put a nickel in them or you wouldn't spend the time and effort to start them. But uh, a million things can go wrong that you didn't count on. Uh, in one case, um, I had a founder who was a brilliant guy and he was a young guy. Um uh, and he died of a heart attack, right. uh, and the business couldn't survive him. The company that we took public almost had the similar story. I don't think that death is the only thing that can go wrong. Lots of things can, but we had just gotten public. We were rolling along. We were ready to do a second round of financing back in 2007, and I'd hired a wonderful uh, CEO to come in because my whole theory is if I start a company, if I'm still running it, when it's got eight figures of revenue, I have failed in my job because my job is to replace myself with somebody who is better operationally than I am. Mm. I had the perfect guy and we were out raising money and I came back in in January of 2008 from the squash court and I had a phone call from my CFO. He said, uh, Jeff just died of a heart attack. Really? So I became CFO again, only this time of a public company. Uh, and uh, not CFO, CEO of public yeah. company, and uh, we, you know, the stock obviously went down with the market and with the bad news, and when the stock went down to fifteen cents a share, we, I put a bunch of money in it, uh, conned a couple of my friends into putting some money in. We put a couple million dollars back into the company because the market had collapsed, at fifteen cents a share, and uh, we eventually, within about a year, we got it up to two and a quarter a share. Wow. But uh, it took some doing. Yeah. And uh, so that was and, and it was a matter of partly of just saying, I'm not I believe in the technology. I believe we have something. I'm not going to give up. Mm -hmm. And uh, and partly I was just too dumb to quit. <laughs> but yeah. I'm glad everybody that invested at 15 cents came out really pretty well if they sold their stock at the peak or anywhere close to it. Yeah, they did. Yeah. I was going to ask, since we cover a lot about starting scaling and exiting kind of all three parts of the eight figure business here. Do you, do you keep in mind when you make the comment that you're going to replace yourself with someone else? Do you keep that in mind when you're picking the business and are you kind of looking ahead of time at, for that person? Um, yes and no. I, I certainly keep that in mind as, as a strategy because although I'm capable of running a company and have proven that I can do it, it's not my first love. So if I can get a company up and running, get it big enough and strong enough that I can recruit a top flight CEO to take it to the next step, then I win both ways. I'm usually a major shareholder at that point and I can go on and do it again. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but you, I kind of know what I'm going to need, but I usually have no idea who it's going to be. 
it's interesting because it's kind of been binary. There hasn't, it's kind of someone like yourself that sounds like they want in and they know they're going to want to exit because they don't want to run it. Or it's been people who are just like software, like, no, we just want to build this big company and our, you know, we're going to make the money from building this big thing. Maybe that was more my question. Have you known from the beginning that you wanted, you knew you were going to be a serial entrepreneur on this? It sounded as if, as if by the way you went into the venture end of it. Yeah, I think that's true. The, the only exception to that probably was the, uh, was the company that we took public, the biotech company, because I, I so fell in love with the idea that we might just might have a chance to cure type 1 diabetes, which was a scourge for many, many years, that I really didn't intend to exit until I reached the point that I said, we need a CEO who is a lot stronger in science and biology than I am. Uh, I had great scientists working for me, but I said, for this company to really get there, we need somebody with big, big pharma experience. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but other than that, I, I've always wanted to do it. Now, interestingly, uh, one of the major problems uh, that most startup companies have that I've found that um, where I, I invest is one of two things tends to happen. You either have a founder who makes the transition to the eight-figure or, or greater, greater income or revenue, uh, or they can't make that transition. And when they can't make it, they are often incredibly difficult to get out of the seat. Uh, and they often are their own worst enemy because what you would often want that person to do, particularly in the technical fields that, that I like to invest in, you'd want them to say, look, I've reached my Peter Principle level of incompetency. Let me bring in somebody. Let me continue to do what I do well. Um, and mm -hmm. I would say there, there are very few companies, if you start looking at, at really big ones, where the founder has managed to be make that full transition. Uh, obviously, there are exceptions. They're, you know, they're particularly in the high-tech space. I mean, you know, you have Zuckerberg and Bezos and, and a bunch of others. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of people, I think, in the area that you, that you often talk about, of people who've built up rather substantial uh, eight-figure revenues uh, and are still able to run those companies and manage them. In between, there are a lot that fall off the table. and that, Those are the ones I often see. Mm -hmm. They just cannot make the transition. Yeah. So quick question then here for you. As you look back on uh, the, the, let's just use the medical device business as an example here. Um, and, and so that was a business that you started from scratch, correct? At, yeah, started it totally from scratch, um, found through sheer accident, uh, a scientist who um, had some very interesting technology. It went through several changes, and those may be of value to me, for me to, to, to mention. Yeah. In the, when we started out, what we thought we had was a measuring device that would enable patients undergoing LASIK procedures to get better results. So we thought we had better, faster, and, and so on and so forth. What turned out was we hadn't done our homework really well at all on that case because what they had in the LASIK world was good enough. Mm -hmm. And the patient couldn't really tell the difference between what existed and what we might have created for them. So we quickly realized that uh, we had no market. There was nobody going to pay the money for our device. 
So we shifted and we then said, well, it's also a wonderful device for uh, identifying and potentially treating young children who have a condition called amblyopia, which is a, where one eye doesn't function properly and mm. it's often misdiagnosed and so on. So it's, it's a bad, nasty problem. So we shifted to that. We dug into that and we realized that, yeah, that's okay, but there's no market. The market is so fragmented that we had nobody to sell to that, again, could afford the device. So it was only in the third try when we said, well, wait a minute, there's yet another use for this because we love the technology. And that is there are surgeons who are performing cataract surgery. And in cataract surgery, they, they remove the clear lens in the eye, which has become cloudy, and they put in a new lens, acrylic or plastic, whatever, whatever it's made of. And to get that so that you get really good vision is extraordinarily difficult. In my parents' generation, if you had cataract surgery, you ended up wearing Coke bottle type glasses. Now you can get 20-20 vision as a byproduct of the surgery. You start with terrible vision, you get 20-20. Then we found a way to use the device. We put it on the surgical microscope. The physician could, in less than 10 seconds, know exactly what lens and what measurements they needed, put it in, and the patients walked out with vision that's as good as you get with LASIK vision. Mm -hmm. so, so I guess what I'm trying to, to get to the, to the bottom of also then is just kind of going back then to the, the scale side of the equation here. So you come across this person who has this technology. And at that point you felt like, geez, there's gotta be a huge opportunity here to be able to do something with this, with this person, but it's just you and that person, right. Who has this technology. Take us through. Did you, did you then just do a 50, 50 partnership? Did you raise capital? Like how did you then begin to take that one person with this interesting idea, this interesting technology, and actually build a business around that? What happened? Very good. Very good question. Um, it was initially just me. I had one other partner who was involved in it uh, with me in the investing side, and he was a pretty good fundraiser at, at the sort of individual level. So we said, this is going to take some money. So he and I set about to, to raise some capital. We created a company. We raised Ultimately, I think about $5 million in several tranches mm -hmm. uh, and built out some prototypes, uh, solidified our knowledge of the science. And then in that case, what we ended up having to do was to go into the venture capital world to get additional follow-on capital because ultimately it took us about 50 or $60 million, as I recall, to get to the point ultimately that we could sell the company. So, so hold there. on. I just want to time you out here yeah. for one second. So out of the gate, so it was just, was it a third, a third, a third? And the three of you were partners or do you, do you remember generally how you structured it? And then do you remember how you did the five million? Was it a valuation? Was it a convertible note? Like what, what was the structure around the, sure, the original? I, I, you're, you're taking me back a few years. Sorry. I, I, I know some of this may be no, a, no, that's fair. Yeah. legitimate question, but I'll, I'll, I'll I'll get close to it. I may just trying to help our people who are looking, you know, to start a business and then how something like what you did here, you began to scale. So maybe opening their minds to, to some different structures that are possible. Yeah. Well, what we did is initially um, we set up a, uh, a valuation on the company. I, let's say we valued the technology at, at you know, $100,000, million, whatever the number was. Yeah. The original guy with the idea and the technology I think he started out with about 20% of the company. My partner and I 
who were in charge of making it happen. I became the CEO and he became the CFO. We started out with 80%. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, based yeah. on our promise that we could raise the rest of the money. Mm. Um, and then we went into the market to, you know, friends and family and, and, and private investors and ultimately raised the first $5 million. Uh, and that was mostly in a convertible preferred. Okay. Uh, and then... Can you explain? Got, and I understand that, but just for the audience's sake, can you can you explain what a convertible preferred means? Just just want to make sure people have clarity around that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, convertible preferred is is basically just a preferred stock means that you get your money back before the common shareholders do. So in this case, the investors would get their money back before we as founders would get any profit from it, mm -hmm. and that gives people some level of reassurance that you're not going to just take their money and chop half of it out and give them half back and you walk away rich. So you guys, uh, it, again, just for clarity's sake, so as founders, you held common stock. And so in the, in the event of, of any sort of waterfall, in the event of any sort of exit, those that put in this round of five million, they would then, in terms of a, a waterfall, if you will, let's just say the company sold for six million, they would get the first five million and obviously uh, there's probably some sort of preferred return or something of that nature yeah. as well built in. And then anything that's left would trickle down to you guys as common shareholders. Exactly. So yeah. okay. the founders are taking, you know, a major risk. They get a major return. If you get it up to a you know, 10x exit of some sort, then it's, then it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that's how it's done. And. Today, what I'm seeing a lot more of uh, in the early stage companies is often a convertible, a convertible note of some sort. Mm -hmm. Same same result. You 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 hold on to it. You're protected on the downside, and when the company gets successful enough, so that the conversion feature uh, is worth more than the note feature, then then you convert. Mm -hmm. uh, so it does give. There's no protect, protection for the investor against failure, but it does give you some real protection. If the if the company then goes bad along the way and yeah. does well, and you raised There's, a second round of, of fifty to sixty, you said. Well, we did. We did, and this is one where there's a a lesson in here that I wish I hadn't had to learn. That was mm. relatively early in my career. One of the things that happened in those days, and still happens, I think, with a lot of VC financing, although it's gotten better, was the VCs would also come in with convertible preferred. And they would have what they call a liquidation preference. And the liquidation preference says various ways, but a classic one is what they is, is a one times participation liquidation. What that really says is we get all of our money back plus our, our dividends, and then we participate as if we had converted, which is a very different thing. So now mm -hmm. let's say you started with five million. Uh, and you put in $5 million in convertible preferred, and the company goes to 10 Well, the people putting in the preferred get their $5 million back, and they get half of the next $10 million. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get two-thirds of the company, and you're left with it one-third. Mm -hmm. You start doing that through multiple rounds of venture capital financing, and the original investors can get seriously diluted. You get nothing. Or yeah. polluted. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so you have to be very careful of that if you're in, in that game. Uh, and we all get burned at the beginning and then we learn and we get better at it. Yeah, for sure. Mary, Rich. I was going to ask, do you tend to go back to the same group of people that have invested with you in the past to raise money again, or do you look for new groups? Well, 
at the present time, I'm only investing my own money. I've stopped going back to uh, individual investors. Uh, I still have to, if I start a company, I still have to go either to the VC market or there are some specialty boutique firms that I, I like very much. If I could create a company uh, that either had the revenue potential or was in the, in the biotech or the science field where we could sell on the value of the future uh, quality of the, of the technology, I would look first to one of two or three boutique investment banking firms, which will often put in early stage private capital, will then raise a round of private capital, but from their investor base, uh, usually all at common stock, mm. and then commit to taking the company public, assuming the markets will permit it, in 18 to 24 months. Uh, that has been a, an extraordinarily successful uh, investment pattern for me. I've used it more as an investor, though, in fact, totally as an investor, not as an entrepreneur founder, mm -hmm. because frankly, there were it, it didn't really exist when I was starting the last two companies that I started. Mm -hmm. So now I, I invest my own money. I will often help people, help the companies raise money by bringing investors to them, but I, I don't get paid for that. It's just, I'm, I'm banking on the success of the company. Yeah. So when you're out looking for a new investment, is that like there's enough to go around for everybody or is it really competitive or you just have been doing it so long that you know how to find the next one? All three. Okay. <laughs> the, reason I, the reason I say that is the, finding good investments is incredibly competitive. Uh, and the Silicon Valley crowd in New York and the other VC centers spend an enormous amount of time and effort trying to find good investments. And they, they often bid the prices up, I think often bid them up way above what they're worth, witness the down round for Uber and others. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found is that by and large investments, if, if you're known at all as, as being an investor or being capable of doing companies, Investments will come to you, and then it's a sorting process. Um, I don't know. I don't know any VCs, and I don't know any private investors who are successful. There may be some. I just don't know them. But who actually advertise for new business? You, you, you have so much coming in over the transom, and so many people wanting to refer their their friends or their brother-in-law or just companies they've heard of. Mm -hmm. That there's no lack of deals to look at. What's missing is lack of deals that have quality and that you can look at and say, okay, I can see how to take this to a sale or take this to an IPO and, and all of us get back mm -hmm. 10 times our money, which is kind of everybody's subconscious goal. You know, I want yeah. 10 times money back. You don't often get it. The VCs don't get that. I mean, they'll get it once in a while, but when you count in the losers, if they get, you know, three uh, X on balance, they're doing really well. Yeah. But you can, sure. Yeah, at a quick one that kind of goes hand in hand with Mary's there. It reminds me a lot, even though it's a completely different vertical, this reminds me a lot of Hollywood. Like if they knew the blockbuster to make, they would just make the blockbuster, right? Why would you do all these other movies, right? But there is a some form of of kind of looking between is who's associated with it, so the team, so who's the cast. Right. It seems very similar. Who's the team that's running the company? How do you sort when you're looking at investing? Is there a certain phase in the, the business? hierarchy of what's yeah. going to make it appealing to you? Kind yeah. of where they're at and what phase. 
Absolutely. Uh, the most critical factor in any company that's starting out, and I'm sure you see it in the companies with the uh, successful entrepreneurs that you've interviewed in the past, is the people running it. Yeah. Uh, the greatest technology in the world is worthless unless you have the scientists or the founders or the marketing genius or whatever that can drive that to revenue or drive it to an exit point in the case of the biotech world that I live in for the most part. Mm -hmm. So that's the most critical. And, and that's, that's a hard thing to measure. I mean, you get better at it with time, but you still make big mistakes and, and everybody, everybody does. The other thing that makes us different or makes what I do at least different from the film industry, which I stay far away from, cause I know <laughs> I know just enough to lose all my money. <laughs> uh, but is that in the, in the medical device and the biotech area, and, and, I'm, and certainly the same must be true in the high-tech area, which I don't understand well enough to be an investor except occasionally in public companies, is you do know there are certain niches that there's a vacuum in. And you can begin to see if we could solve that problem, that friction point, we could make a major difference. And so it's a little easier, whereas if you're dealing with motion pictures, you have to say, well, what do I think, you know, Joe Sixpack is going to want to watch next week. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's a much higher risk game. And the numbers are higher. I mean, it costs to do major motion picture in the hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes. Mm -hmm. You can get a lot of waypoints on the way towards success in the venture capital world, uh, private or public or whatever, so that you can cut your losses a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. you, you can't test the market with a half-done movie. Mm -hmm. But yeah. you can, if you're not getting proper progress, you, you may still lose some money, but you won't lose $50 million. Yeah, points well taken. So, so it's interesting. And on the, on the hierarchy, it sounds to me like team being number one, and then obviously the technology and the potential and other pieces, of course, being important elements. That's, you, you may not know much about me or Mary or, or Rich. I mean, I've, I've actually been online since 1993 and uh, I'm currently chairman and founder of liquor.com, which is the domain that I picked up in 1998. So I've been online for a long time uh, and I've done real estate development for the better part of uh, 15, 18 years. So, you know, we share, we share a lot uh, in common from, from that perspective as well. So it's interesting. I find um, I'm in the process of launching a new endeavor, uh, which is just called Latitude at this point, And you'll appreciate this. So it's kind of bridging the gap between traditional home ownership, which has zero flexibility, but you get decent ROI, you build equity and renting where you piss away your money and but you do have flexibility but you get no roi at all on that and creating almost a, a third class of real estate altogether which i'm calling nomadic flexible housing where basically our members so if you think about housing as a uh, mem um, software as a service it's basically uh -huh. ho housing as a service so uh -huh. our members will have the ability to move from our company-owned locations to company-owned locations as often as every 30 days, and they can stay in any location they want for however long they want. But so they have the flexibility of being able to move from location to location as often as every 30 days. They have uh, privacy, so we're not talking about co-living. It's actually their own accommodations, fully furnished, right. you know, beautiful accommodations, plug and play, just bring your suitcase and go. And they also build equity as if they're a homeowner without the headaches of homeownership. 
And so been working on this now for quite some time. And where I'm stuck at the moment is building out the executive team and putting together the advisory board. And even though I've raised you know, tens of millions in, in venture capital with Liquor.com and other endeavors, that's where I'm stuck right now. So the potential is there. The research is done. The demand is there. Even at just 300 members, I mean, this, this is potentially a, a unicorn in value. I hate using that term, but it doesn't take a lot of members for this thing to become quite a substantial entity yeah. because we actually own the real estate. So it's ostensibly mm, – it's a, it's a real estate play disguised as a tech play to, to some extent. But that's where I'm a little bit stuck right now is building out the executive team to go to market to raise – the capital to move this forward of putting in my own money as well, but, uh, and building out the advisory board. So for those yeah. who are in that position of, of, and as you said, team first, you know, great team, you crush it, you know, everything else kind of plays second fiddle to the team, any advice around, not just, not just necessarily as it relates to latitude, uh, but just in general, any ideas around building out team and advisory board? Well, that I think is one of the toughest puzzles, and I, I must confess I'm not sure I have any answer to it. I'm mm. pretty good at evaluating people when I find them, but uh, it's often a matter, I think, of doing just what you just did, which is to put the word out in whatever format you can uh, and start looking for people. Your latitude has some unique issues, I think, because you're, you are a very new concept, and it's kind of a hybrid. It is. And, uh, and, you know, are you Airbnb? Are you, you know, whatever? And yep. uh, so I can see where the difficulty would be. Um, I wish I had a good answer for that. I, I really don't. <laughs> it's it's, a, yeah. it's a, a, a six degrees of separation type of puzzle. Yeah. And you just, uh, as my experience has been, you, you just don't get there with any shortcuts except to ask a lot of questions, ask a lot of people, and then sift through a lot of people that won't work. Yeah, for sure. Richie, what were you going to say on that? No, I love it. I love his answer even because early on when Steve first brought this up, we kind of even would say, Kelly would say, a couple of us would like, talk about it more. But it seems like it's such an easy potential one to steal. And then you kind of go all the way full circle and you say, well, people mostly don't do anything with their own ideas. The odds of them stealing your idea and running with it are slim to none. So I love you give them that advice. And as I heard it, I started to hear, well, who knows? Maybe that team ends up being the people who want to contribute the money too, right? So it's just people who believe in that same vision. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we'll see. He's got to talk to more people, but I I love the concept, but I can see it's the minimum viable product. Like how do you just get the momentum to get it going is the first hardest part. So I I love that. That was your answer. Even though you said it wasn't an answer, like (laughs) it, I I love it. Well, you said something else that I have found over the years to be very true and, and sadly so. And that is so many people with a good idea and the potential for a big company are so paranoid that somebody will steal the idea that they never move on it. Yeah. Uh, and the reality is, as you said, there are very few ideas that, that get stolen. I don't know about the motion picture industry. I hear it's a little more prevalent there. But uh, it takes so much execution to take even a good idea that even ideas that can't be protected by intellectual property, obviously, if you can get a patent or a trademark early on, that helps. But... I, I've almost never seen an idea stolen, and I've never seen a venture capital firm or a quality investment banking firm 
steal an idea and run away with it. They get mm -hmm. once in a while get sued because somebody had something similar and annoyed because they didn't get funded. But the reason they didn't was usually because they didn't have a good executive team. Mm -hmm. Well, let's um, let's give you an, uh, an opportunity here. And uh, Maris, you actually have it up on the screen right now. Do you, can you talk a little bit uh, about Dream Toolbox and, and what, you know, obviously it's a book, <laughs> which is uh, about, about building, yeah, building an entrepreneurial mind and, and financial abundance. Uh, let's talk about Dream Toolbox. You put it uh, together. You this a life's work. Like let's uh, let's let's share what that's all about. Well, before he oh, answers, please. The question I had was, what stage of an entrepreneurial life would this book be best served for the person? Because I've been okay, a serial think, entrepreneur, but I'm always wanting to learn more. Well, I th I think I can answer both questions at once. The the book started out really as my way of paying paying it forward for mentors who helped me when I was very young and didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, and so I was targeting really young people, college or high school and college, mainly high school. And I was mentoring in classes, trying to teach some elements of entrepreneurship, because what I realized is that the average high school kid, um, whether he's from a poverty area or not, tends to have a vision of life as get my degree, take a boring job and hope for a good retirement. And that to me is slow death. So it started that way. Um, I put together a series of five-minute or less podcasts that are on the website of dreamtoolbox.com, which is kind of a mini course in how do you think like an entrepreneur? Because my view was you don't need to have a roadmap and you don't need to have textbooks per se. They're all, all over the place when you start looking on how to write a business plan or how to build a business. What is missing to a large extent is how do you shift your mindset from I can't to I can? You know, there's that wonderful quote from uh, Henry Ford, you know, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And it's really more about that. It's about shifting mindset with some practical ideas. And it's really aimed at the person who is either starting out and thinking I might want to be an entrepreneur. But the truth is, if they change their mindset, they can be also very successful within a big corporation because that mindset will set them ahead of their competitors. So it, it's about that. And uh, so I, but my friends all pointed out to me, okay, the, you're not getting much volume or much traction on your website, probably because I didn't know what you know, <laughs> but that's another story. Uh, but you need to write a book. You need the calling card. Uh, maybe then people will invite you on blog talk radios <laughs> and podcasts, uh, which is happening. And I'm grateful for that. Uh, because my goal is to just show people an alternative. Uh, I, I don't know how much time we have, but I, yeah, we got I, remember, the, I, I remember in the classes, uh, one of the things I discovered was that it wasn't solely about me just showing up. It was that momentary aha moment where something I would say or something someone else would say would pull back the curtains and you'd say, holy cow, there's a, a world out there, and I didn't even know it existed. And I would see it happen maybe once a semester with one or two kids. But then I saw something else. I saw the same thing happen when I was a guest panelist on a, on a group for a group of about 150 high school kids. Um, and something I said triggered something. And afterwards, two or three of the, of the kids came to me or got to me through the founder. And I was able to help one of them get a, a, a business started, actually, still in the nascent stage. 
but I realized that this wasn't because I was there or I was that charismatic, but something I said hit a, hit the right button. And so I said, this is a numbers game. If I can get this message out to enough people, whether it's 10 more people or 100 more or a million more, I increase the probability that that aha moment will happen for at least one more kid or one more person. Because I've discovered a lot of people have read the book who are adults. And they've come to me and they said, wow, I wish somebody had told me that stuff when I was 20. In which I say, well, you learned it now. So don't don't waste the next 20 or 30 years of your life by not acting. Yeah. So anyway, that's the history in the background. I thank you for letting me mention it. It's available on Amazon. Just Google or, or just go to Amazon for Dream Toolbox and you'll find it. Yeah. And so if uh, it, so you are still an active investor, you're still looking for opportunities. Yeah. I invested in three deals last week. Sweet. So. <laughs> All right. Well, if you're, if you're game for reviewing the Latitude deck, I'd love to get your feedback on it, my Actually, friend. I would love you to send me the Latitude deck. There you go. You have my Sweet. email. I hope you will. All right. I don't Very know cool. that I can help, but I'll be glad to read it and tell you what I think. Yeah. Feedback is uh, often more valuable than money. So thank you for that opportunity. And, uh, and speaking of opportunities, I encourage everybody to go and, and check out Ken's work. Ken Aldrich, A-L-D-R-I-C-H. Uh, and again, you can get Dream Toolbox, Building an Entrepreneurial Mind. Uh, and financial abundance. You can get uh, access to his shows, his podcasts, and, uh, of course, more information on the book it's, uh, itself at dreamtoolbox.com. We've got about 30 seconds here, Ken. Any parting words of wisdom, my friend? Well, only these, and it's probably something that you hear all the time, but um, Nike has a wonderful logo, which is just, or slogan, of just do it. Yeah. And I see so many people who have ideas, who have dreams of starting a business, whether it's building a, a local store or whether they want to become the next Nike or, or want to be the next Amgen, and they don't do it. Yeah. And it's often fear. It's often fear of embarrassment. It can be a million things. Yeah, just do it. But Great Just advice, Ken. Really appreciate you joining us here. And uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. we got a wrap for Mary Goulet, for Richie Ote. I'm Steve Olsher. We'll talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.